Hi, this is Monica Lopez. Before we get to our podcast, I want to let you know that Making Contact is supported mostly by our listeners. We're a nonprofit shop with a small yet mighty team. In other words, a little goes a long way for us, and a little more goes a lot longer. So if you can, please go to our website, radioproject.org, and make a tax-deductible donation. Thanks, and here's the show. Making, making contact. On this edition of Making Contact, you'll hear excerpts from the documentary The Murder of Fred Hampton. Produced by filmmakers Mike Gray and Howard Auk, the film explores how the FBI conspired with Chicago police to murder Fred Hampton a dynamic community leader whose ideas of militant black resistance and socialist ideology made him a target of the United States government. We present this for historical context amidst current media disinformation and government surveillance of groups organizing for black lives and liberation. And we're going to say it after this, not that I'm locked up, not that everybody's locked up, that you can jail revolutionaries, but you can't jail a revolution. You might want to liberate like Harris Cleaver out the country, but you can't run liberation out the country. You might murder a freedom fighter like Bobby Hutton, but you can't murder freedom fighting. And if you do, you come up with answers that don't answer explanations that don't explain. You come up with conclusions that don't conclude. And you come up with people that you thought should be acting like pigs, just acting like people and moving on pigs. And that's what we've got to do. So we're going to see about Bobby, regardless of what these people think we should do. Because schools is not important and work is not important. Nothing's more important than stopping fascism because fascism will stop us all. We're going to see about Bobby because Bobby came and saw about us. Fifty years ago, on December 4th, 1969, Chicago police, with FBI support, assassinated Black Panthers, Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. Hampton was only 21 years old. This is Fred Hampton in his own words. So we say, we always say to the Black Panther Party that they can do anything they want to to us. We might not be back. I might be in jail. I might be anywhere. But when I leave, you can remember I said with the last words on my lips that I am a revolutionary. And you're going to have to keep on saying that. You're going to have to say that I am a proletarian. I am the people. I'm not the pig. You've got to make a distinction. And the people are going to have to attack the pigs. The people are going to have to stand up against the pigs. That's what the Panthers are doing. That's what the Panthers are doing all over the world. We have brought to trial here Fred Hampton. You are here to judge between two conflicting testimonies. Somebody is lying. Now, reason stands. I, I reason is very clear here. That Private Jones, who had come from Sanford, North Carolina, would have no great desire to see Fred Hampton up in this trial. But Fred Hampton, a key figure in this community, has great reason for not wanting to be put in jail. But the state's attorney and the state's attorney's office has reasons to see Fred Hampton in jail. We've got a new state's attorney, you see. And he said already what he thought about people that had different uh, political beliefs than he had. His speeches sound somewhat like those of Hitler, and we know why he wants to see Fred Hampton put in jail. 
Why do I have a lot of arrests because of harassment? Why is that harassment? Because the people that harass me have set up a problem that made me disagree with them violently. And, and they, they set up this problem in order to exploit me and other people like me. And why they want to get rid of me because I'm saying something that might wake up some other exploited people and some other oppressed people. And if all these people ever get together, then these pigs that are exploiting us, we'll be able to run them into the lake. That's why they want to get rid of us. And it's just, uh, it's sort of like a primary thing with me. I'm the, I'm the first move that they'll make. I'm a part of an organization that will be the first organization they'll move on because I happen to be a part of an organization, the Black Panther Party, that is the only organization, in fact, that has came out and stood up loud and clear and said that we don't care what anybody says, whether they have guns or not and badges or 18 uniforms, if whenever they step outside the bounds of legality into the bounds of illegality, then we'll blow their brains out if they're bothering the people. Right and what makes them mad about that? They're constantly bothering the people. Anybody that's out there for the protection of the people happens to be in direct conflict with them. What makes them mad about it? What makes them mad about it is that they have black people and white poor people and red poor people and Puerto Rican poor people and Latin American Puerto Rican people of uh, all poor people of all descent. They had them caught up in movements based on racism when the Black Panther Party stood up and said that we don't care what anybody says. We don't think to fight fire with fire. We think you fight fire with water. We're going to fight racism, not with racism, but we're going to fight with solidarity. We said we're not going to fight capitalism with black capitalism, but we're going to fight it with socialism. We stood up and said we're not going to fight reactionary pigs and reactionary state attorneys like Hanrahan with any other reactions on our part. We're going to fight their reactions with all of us people to get together and have an international proletarian revolution. Right on. Almost five decades later, Hampton's message of resisting state repression remains relevant. And as a man of the people, he refused to let the intimidation tactics by the state stop him from organizing and working in the interests of the people. Here is Fred Hampton in conversation about the importance of deep political education. You basically knowing my ideology, basically you know me knowing yours, you can uh, support some of our programs. Is that what you're saying? Why not? And you believe in programs like the Breakfast Children program and free health clinics. Right on, brothers? We believe they're good things. Uh-huh. As a focal point to organize their mothers and fathers. Uh-huh. Peace. Mm-hmm. There's no educational program here? Uh, that's come out of the social action thing. You know, you set that up, brother. I mean, we can't put everything on one piece of paper. What about this bank? Credit union? Mm-hmm. Credit union. Credit union, my brother. Is a if bank. You're hip to, are you hip to credit unions? It is a bank. Yeah, you go and buy money? Yeah. Yeah, it's a bank. It's a bank. Owned by the people. Run for the people. And by the people. What will money be given out to people for? Well, the people would decide that. You want to buy, you know, whatever, you know, the people in the community decide. You need some living room furniture, maybe? You need a car, maybe? See, I got... The thing is, with me, you dig, I, I need to know some more about it. I wish you had some more literature about the educational thing here. Because, you dig, as far as we're concerned in, uh, in the struggle, the way we look at struggle is that uh, this depends on the educational thing, you dig. Because uh, This depends on the educational thing. Well, the whole thing. No, but in the end, this does. You, you can form this with no education. You can uh, form this. this no, time. not the way we're talking about forming it. You know, right. We're talking about forming it right. You know, it's not on the paper. We didn't write it on no, the paper. No, form it right with no education. 
Let me give you an example. Uh, you, Yomo you, Kenyatta formed the excellent revolution with no education. And on the day of the end thing, Yomo told the mother, they said, well, uh, you know, you can educate the, uh, uh, hate the enemy, but uh, I'm your brother. I'll help you lead the revolution. Now I'm more pressure. Another example, Papa Doc in Haiti. Papa Doc in Haiti hated everything white. Man, you couldn't put this white paper in front of Papa Doc's face. But he moved all the white people out and he took over and be yeah, oppressed. He did, because of no education. And the people that had been educated, they said that we don't hate white people, we hate the oppressor, whether he be white, black, brown, or yellow. So we got to know the educational program to find out what it's going to be in the finale. A lot of people work. Yomo Kenyatta is called not a never a revolutionary, but an ex-revolutionary. So it's Papa Doc. They brought on a successful revolution. That thing in the Mamas was a Bantu freedom fighters, all that kind of action. But what we're saying is that it's the end. That you don't judge Castro now. You can't do it. Nobody in this room could judge whether Castro's going to be a revolutionary or not. Uh, you know what I mean? We're talking about things, you know what I mean, uh, with uh, China, the People's Republic, and even at the stage they're in now, talking about even going on further into a communistic state. That's what we're talking about. That was a revolutionary. So we got to understand here the educational program that you have to be able to figure out whether it will go on the right lines, where the people will end up in a situation where they can be able to really control themselves. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, with no education, the people that take this local foundation and start stealing money because they won't be really educated to why it's the people's thing anyway. You understand what I'm saying? With no education, you have neo-colonialism instead of colonialism, like you got in uh, Africa 9, like you got in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Haiti. So what we're talking about is there has to be an uh, educational program. That's very important. As a matter of fact, we are so important for us that a person has to go through six weeks of our political education before he can consider himself a member of the party, able to even run down ideology for the party. Why? Because if they don't have an education, then they know where. You dig what I'm saying? They know where because they don't even know why they're doing what they're doing. You, you might get people caught up in an emotionless movement. Uh, you understand me? You might be able to get them caught up in because they're poor and they want something. And then if they're not educated, they want more. And before you know it, they'll be capitalists. And before you know it, we'll have Negro imperialists. Yeah, you see, brother, uh, the reason we don't do a lot of talking because what you say is foregone conclusion with us. Yeah, well, see, brother, the reason I do do a lot of talking is because I don't, there's no foregone conclusion with me. Fred Hampton's talking and thinking was connected to the requirement that individuals interested in becoming members of the party discuss and subscribe to the ideology of the party. Every member of the Black Panther Party was expected to attend political education classes that taught the fundamentals of the party's 10-point platform and program, a layout of rules of engagement, conduct, and the social-political objectives of the organization. As a leader in the Black Panther Party, Hampton also talked about the need for working class and oppressed people to unite. He explored the intersectionality of identity politics and class-based struggles. In 1969, Hampton helped to form the Rainbow Coalition, a multi-ethnic union of young leaders who challenged Chicago's power elite to effect change for the city's most disenfranchised communities. Hampton was also able to broker a gang truce between some of Chicago's most active street gangs. This type of political organizing was directly seen as a threat to the internal security of the country. J. Edgar Hoover, as director of the FBI, led a secret counterintelligence program now known as COINTELPRO, aimed at surveilling, discrediting, and disrupting domestic organizations. In the words of the FBI's own directives, agents were told to, quote, dismantle, destabilize, and neutralize or otherwise eliminate these movements. The murders on December 4, 1969, of 21-year-old Fred Hampton and 22-year-old Black Panther Mark Clark were a direct example of the state's suppression of black militancy and the emergence of today's U.S. police state. After Hampton's murder, 
Black Panther leader Bobby Rush asked the world to critically examine the brutality and unjust events of that day. You are the ones who are gonna, gonna decide for yourselves what happened in that apartment on the morning of December 4th. You're gonna decide whether or not Fred Hampton and Mark Clark were the victims of premeditated murder. There's no response from within. I take my revolver in my right hand and I pound possibly four, five, or six times. A voice from within, a male voice from within, replies, Who's there? I respond, Police officers, I have a search warrant. Open the door. As soon as Sergeant Daniel Groth and Officer James Davis, who were leading our men, announced their office, occupants of the apartment attacked them with shotgun fire. I wait several seconds. There's no reply from within. The door's not open. I again take my revolver in my right hand. I wait a second or so. A male voice from within the apartment says, just a minute. There was no response from the group. There was no verbal response. The response from the group was the firing of a shotgun blast at our police officers. There was no verbal response in addition to the, the, the response to our police officers was the firing at them by a person in the apartment. Didn't they ask who was it several times? When the police officers uh, announced their office, they were fired upon. Didn't they ask who was it at the door? The answer. A shot rings out, goose falls off in this direction. I enter in a semi-erect position. There's a woman lying on the bed with a shotgun, calmly pumping it, pointing in my direction, and fires. The, the uh, fire illuminates her face. I get a very good look at her. I feel something go over my left shoulder. I then step back here. I look in, get up on my toes, Find my revolver, look in again, cover my face, and fire several shots at the girl. I heard a knock on the door. He said, policeman told us to open up. And my o'clock, he said, just a minute, he got up. And next thing I knew, they had busted into the door. They came in shooting. They shot me. They shot my o'clock. This here is the room where the first brother, my o'clock, was murdered at. Don't touch nothing, don't move nothing, because we want to keep everything just the way it is. Don't, don't touch no walls. Please don't. Okay, this here is the door that they said the sister fired through with a shotgun. But if the sister had fired through this door with a shotgun, you could look at the wall out there and see some uh, uh, holes where the pellets had left out there. You can see no signs of a shotgun blast being fired through this door here. Sir, you say your men were fired upon? Witnesses who have seen the apartment say there is no evidence of bullets from the direction where the uh, Panthers supposedly were to be. I said that uh, after our officers uh, announced their uh, purpose and their station several times, uh, they were fired upon from within the room. We say this is no nothing more than a fascist lie uh, to justify the murder that took place in this crib here. This doorway here, which is absent of a door, the door has been removed and is now in the possession of our defense attorneys 
and it's going to be used in our case to prove that what happened here was nothing more than murder. After days of maneuvering, Black Panther attorney Francis Andrew finally brought a bullet-punctured door panel to the inquest. However, a controversy immediately arose as to whether Andrew's panel was the same one that was removed from the Black Panther apartment. This is Andrew's version. Which, which side is the uh, outside, sir? The outside, uh, you're looking from the inside now. Looking from the inside now? Yes, you look out this side. That's the inside? This is the outside. Uh, it looks like the, the door is splintered on both sides. You see that there is a hole up here, which no, none of the police in their testimony have mentioned. As a matter of fact, they have denied this hole up here. It shows a, a bullet coming from the outside to the inside. The hole at the bottom there. The hole at the bottom is a hole that was made while the door was standing wide open. Assistant State's Attorney Nicholas Motherway says Andrew could have gotten the door panel at any lumber yard. Motherway's point was backed up at least in part by a police crime lab technician who examined the door in the Panther apartment the same day as the raid. The technician said first of all that there was only one hole in the panel the day he examined it, and second of all he said that he couldn't be sure the panels were one in the same. This is December 4th, 1969 at 10.54 a.m. My name is Skip Andrew and I'm at 2337 West Monroe Street, Chicago, Illinois. This door, which is the door entering into the living room, has two holes in it. This one I'm pointing to right here, 10 inches from the edge, and this one uh, down here, uh, 12 inches. Uh, the first one I referred to being 25 from the top, and the uh, second one, 36 from the top. Now, as you open this, there's also, of course, a knob door in this one. As you open this door, there's uh, blood uh, behind the door. The, uh, top, the top hole shows that the bullet was incoming. They fired through the door and hit the brother through the door. The brother fell here. Most of the blood is dried up, but you can see a little bit of it there and a little bit of it on the floor. The brother was shot four or five times, so after they came through the door, they shot him again to make sure he was dead. Mr. Montgomery, Dr. Constantino testified today that Mark Clark could not have struggled after receiving that shot through the heart. Now, in your mind, does this contradict the testimony of Officer Davis, who described a struggle? Uh, yes, it seems to me that that was a very startling thing. We also learned that uh, the bullet which was in fact recovered from Mr. Hampton's body uh, was a bullet fired uh, out of a carbine by Officer Davis. So that indicates also that Officer Davis uh, may well have walked into that back bedroom contrary to his testimony and fired a shot into the body of Fred Hampton at one point in time or other. There were six of us assigned to the back door. I came up on the back porch. I placed myself to the right of the door. I put my head down enough so I could hear if there was any conversation in the building. I heard people talking in the front, and then I heard a loud uh, shot, sounded like a shotgun. I backed up and kicked the door open. I started in, and before I could get past the threshold, there were three shots fired from the rear bedroom. They were directed directly at the back door uh, as I was coming in. I backed out again. Only by the grace of God uh, was one of our, or two of our police officers prevented from being killed uh, when they were fired upon as soon as they announced their office and knocking on the door. <laughs> 
You're listening to Making Contact. I'm Anita Johnson. We'll hear more from the documentary film The Murder of Fred Hampton in just a moment. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, and Australia. To find out how to donate, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Now back to the film, The Murder of Fred Hampton. On December 11th, 1969, the Chicago Tribune carried a story that it characterized as an exclusive version from the state's attorney's office. Why was the uh, disclosure made in the Chicago Tribune? Because that newspaper, the Chicago Tribune, in my opinion, gave a very balanced, fair report of the events that occurred. It has nothing to do with the class of people or the type of people that buy the Tribune as opposed to other papers in the city? Does anybody have a sensible question? Included in the exclusive was a photo carefully circled to show bullet holes supposed to be in the back door. The account that we made public yesterday gives a detailed explanation of what happened in that apartment. Uh, I stand wholeheartedly behind it as absolutely accurate. There is one inconsistency in, well, for example... Uh, I do not intend to quibble about that account. Do you nor intend to get the truth? The account that we gave of the events is the truth. One of the four pictures you gave the Tribune had two bullet holes on the right side of what was supposed to be the rear door. Uh, Henry has Henry Henry has lied before and he's going to lie again. That that hole that he's blown up in the papers is a a hole of a nail. Tight close up of a nail head. Plus a little bit of the door hasp. Plus the door hasp. Now here you see the large nail heads being pointed out. I have said that uh, we released the pictures. We have not characterized or described uh, the uh, conditions that they portray, other than to say that that is an accurate portrayal of that uh, particular object. Do you know if any of the four pictures they received had portrayed bullet holes in any of the walls? I, I... Another photo claimed to show the bullet-riddled door across from the bedroom. The officers testified that the Panthers fired into that door from inside their bedroom. In fact, the door in the photo was the bedroom door, and the holes in the door were made by police gunfire at the Panthers. As you can see, bathroom door is intact. Not only the bathroom door, but the entire wall area is intact. There was a, there was a picture of the um, inside of the door to the bathroom, yes. That door, our reporters discovered, corresponded to one on the front living room adjoining the bedroom. <clears throat> there were holes in the door. When the door was open, they, those holes corresponded to holes that were in the wall adjoining between the bedroom and the living room. And when they stuck a stick through the holes, they all matched up. I have, I make, as I say again, I make no evaluation of the pictures other than to say they, they portray conditions as they existed in that apartment at the time those pictures were taken. This is the door that's supposed to contain numerous marks from a stray shotgun blast and small arm fire, which again was fired by members of the vicious Black Panther Party who were standing in this bedroom here 
shooting out into the hallway here. I urge, I urge your inventory of each of these vicious weapons. This attack, this attack by the Black Panthers on the police, plus the rep weapons which were recovered uh, at the uh, depot where they were storing them, clearly demonstrates the true character of the Black Panther Party. Nobody, I have never denied that there was no weapons there. As a matter of fact, he would be a fool if he didn't have a weapon there, knowing uh, the, the ferociousness of the pigs, how they just jump out of the cars and, and shoot you down, how they knock on your door and blow 19-year-old uh, sister's head off with shotguns, how they kill two brothers in, in one week. Yeah, he's, and as a matter of fact, everybody that, that, that's concerned should have a, a something in their home to protect themselves because Hanrahan is a madman. They came with a murder on their mind, you see. And even if they wanted to take somebody to jail, it would be a simple matter of just shooting some tear gas in his draw everybody yeah. out. Right on. This is where our chairman had his brains blown out and he uh, lay in his bed, sleeping at 4.30 in the morning. Someone came into the room. Started shaking the chairman. Said, Chairman, Chairman, wake up. The pigs are vamping. Still half asleep. I looked up and I saw bullets coming from it looked like the front of the apartment, from the kitchen area. And they were, the pigs were just shooting. And uh, about this time, I jumped on uh, top of the chairman. He looked up. Looked like all the pigs converged at the entranceway to the bedroom area, back bedroom area. The mattress is just going. You could feel the bullets going into it. I just knew we'd be dead, everybody in there. Um, when he looked up, just looked up, he didn't say a word, and he didn't move, except for moving his head up. He laid his head back down to the side like that. He never said a word, and he never got up out the bed. Uh, the person who was in the room, they kept hollering out, stop shooting, stop shooting. We have a pregnant woman or a pregnant sister in here. That time, I was eight and a half to nine months pregnant. My baby was to be delivered in two weeks. Pigs kept on shooting. So uh, he kept on hollering out. Finally, they stopped. They pushed uh, me and the other brother by the uh, kitchen door and told us to face the wall. Heard a pig say, he's barely alive. He'll barely make it. I assume they were talking about Chairman Fred. Then they started shooting the pigs. They started shooting, up, shooting again. I heard a sister scream. They stopped shooting. Pig said, he's good and dead now. The pigs were running around laughing. They were really happy, you know, talking about Chairman Fred's dead. I never saw Chairman Fred again. I believe that I'm going to do my job, and I believe that I was born not to die in a car wreck. I don't believe I'm going to die in a car wreck. I don't believe I'm going to die from slipping on a piece of ice. I don't believe I'm going to die because I got a bad heart. I don't believe I'm going to die because of lung cancer. I believe that I'm going to be able to die what I was in the, in the thing that I was born for. I believe that I'm going to be able to die high off the people. I believe that I will be able to die as a revolutionary in the International Revolutionary Post-Tan Struggle. And I hope that each one of you will be able to die in the 
and him that's the potent revolutionary struggle, we didn't be living in. And I think that struggle is going to come. Why don't you live for the people? Why don't you struggle for the people? Why don't you die for the people? to excerpts from the documentary The Murder of Fred Hampton. The audio was courtesy of Bassett DVD. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. Check out our website, radioproject.org, to get a podcast, download past shows, or make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. The Making Contact team is Executive Director Lisa Rudman, Producers Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, and Salima Himarani. Associate producer is Aisha Chowdhury. Audience engagement and web coordinator Dylan Hoyer. I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening.